February 23, 2022. 17-year-old Alex Bogancha is at home in Kharkiv, Ukraine, hanging out with friends. We were just sitting and talking about everything. But this isn't your average teenage discussion. We're talking about it. Really, it can be tomorrow, because they're saying that Russian soldiers are just 30 kilometers from the border, and our city is like around 50, maybe kilometers from the Russian border. So if the war will happen, it will be just near us. Alex goes to sleep knowing his life may look very different tomorrow. And at 5 a.m., we heard the first missiles, the first bombings, the first sounds of the war. And of course, nobody could believe in it, how the war can happen in 21st century. It's awful. Alex, his younger sister, and his parents are in shock. But they make a decision quickly. We were preparing for leave just about 15 minutes. We packed some basic stuff, brought our dog with us, and left our house. They join thousands of others driving out of Kharkiv, but they're hopeful. Maybe it will come to an end soon, maybe like two weeks. It was just, uh, yeah, just fantasies. Alex and his family go from Ukraine to Germany and then to Austria. His parents struggle to find work. They want Alex to return to university. The war drags on. And then someone they've never met offers to help. Immediately I thought, what can we do for Bagancha now? This is our turn. Marina Orlovetsky is also from Ukraine, now living in the United States. She's never met the Bogancha family in person, but helping them is about more than aiding fellow Ukrainians. It was like all the pieces, like pieces of, you know, all the puzzle, they came together. This is an incredible story that takes place across nearly 80 years, two wars, and many generations. You'll hear how an act of kindness in 1941 comes full circle in 2023 with the help of many caring strangers. My ancestors helped them, and now they're helping us. Like, how it can be possible, I can see it only in movies. And if not this story, it wouldn't happen. I'm Tora Kachur, and this is Tell Me What Happened, true stories of people helping people, an original podcast by OnStar. Every day when you wake up, you don't know if you'll be a person who needs help or if you'll be a person that helps someone else. It's important to remember that it's in all of us to be either one of those things every day. Before we head back into this story, part of it does take place during the Holocaust. Please take care while listening. In every complicated puzzle, there's a point where you find the piece that makes it all come together, that unlocks it. In this story, that puzzle piece is Marina. One of the reasons I decided to pursue a career in psychology, despite on my accent and everything, because I do care and I love helping people. And as more as I know about somebody, I like to dig in their stories and uh, I like to help. And again, as I said, I like to care. 
Marina also grew up in Kharkiv, Ukraine. She has very happy memories of her life there, but... I felt the pressure of being Jewish, and uh, we decided it will be best if we will leave the country. Marina moved to the United States in 1988, eventually settling in California. Years later, in 2013, a friend gives Marina a book, a biography titled Hiding in the Spotlight, a musical prodigy's story of survival. And she said, have you heard this name, Jana Arshanskaya, as she is from the same city as you are, Kharkov? And I thought, no, never heard. Marina is intrigued. It's the story of Jana Arshanskaya, a young Jewish girl living in Kharkiv, Ukraine, at the beginning of the Holocaust. The story itself went through all my body, through my veins, through my brain. I read it in one sitting. I couldn't stop. And it's this book that eventually connects Marina to Alex Bogancha. In 1941, Jana was a fearless and brilliant 14-year-old pianist. She and her younger sister, Frina, were the only children given scholarships to the local music conservatory, where they played often. Her father, he was the dreamer in the family. He wanted them to be pianists. He revered the German musical culture, which is why he'd never believed the rumors that the Nazis were coming and that they were going to kill all the Jews. That's Greg Dawson, Jana's son. He wrote the book and knows how one winter day, his grandfather's dream falls apart. In December 1941, German soldiers rounded up all the Jewish people living in Kharkiv and marched them out of town. It was a bitterly cold day, but it was sunny and there was snow on the ground, and she remembers looking down and the snow glittering like diamonds. They're told they're going to a labor camp. It's a long march. At one point, they're held in an empty factory for two weeks with hardly any food and no heat. On the final day, they got to a fork in the road, and instead of turning towards the town where they said they were being taken, they turned the other way. And her father, Dimitri, knew that wasn't the correct way. And that's when it dawned on him that they were being taken somewhere well, somewhere terrible. He went through his pockets and he had managed to hide a gold watch. And so he, he turned to the guard at one point and he said, if you turn your head long enough for my daughter to run out of line, you can have this watch. The guard took the watch and looked away. Jana's father turned to her. And he said, I don't care what you do, just live. And that's all there was time for. She didn't even have time to say goodbye to everybody. Jana runs out of the line and hides. She never sees her parents or grandparents again. They're marched to a ravine. Drabitskiar, that becomes a mass grave for over 16,000 Jews. Reading Jana's story impacts Marina in ways she can't shake. I never heard about what happened in Drabitskiar. And for me, it was a discovery. It was something new. 
And I was shocked. I was in state of shock. And personally, when I read about this story, I just visualized, I saw myself in this cold day, walking, holding my parents, knowing that this is the last, the last moment I can hold my parents' hand. But Marina can't stop reading now. She must know what happens to Jana. She went back to Kharkiv and she needed somebody to shelter her. She knocked on uh, the doors of two families that she knew, and both families closed the door on her face because the Nazis had let it be known that anybody who was caught harboring Jews would be murdered along with those Jews. Jana turns to a house on her own street, and here's where our two stories come together, where the timelines cross. The house belongs to the Bogancha family. The woman who answers the door is Alex Bogancha's great-great-grandmother. And my mother said, you know, I'm, I'm Jana. And she said, I know who you are, come in. And she pulled her in, and with never any questions. And the Bogancha's, who were not Jewish, they sheltered my mother for two weeks. Uh, because the city was crawling with Nazis. They were looking for all the Jews that they could find. So they were her saviors, I mean, literally. My ancestors helped them, and now they're helping us. A few days later, Frina, Jana's sister, shows up at the door. She never explains how she escaped. Now the Bogancha family is hiding two very well-known Jewish sisters. They know this can't last. They come up with a plan. The girls are Russian orphans. The Boganchas find fake identity documents, and direct them to an orphanage a few towns away, where they hope they won't be recognized. The orphanage is simple. Meals are sparse. But there's a piano. Impressed by their playing, the director of the orphanage decides to get it tuned. When the tuner hears Jana play, he's astounded and demands that she come with him to the closest German army base. There's a, a troop of entertainers there and they need a pianist. You have to come. And so they felt they had to go because not to go might have drawn attention to them. For years, Jana and Frina give concerts for German soldiers. The same forces that rounded up and killed their family and friends. People who hear this story say, how could she how could she play and perform for the same people who had murdered her family? And it's a fair question. And I asked her that. And she said, I wasn't playing for them. I was playing for my mother and my father and my grandparents. And I was playing for the music. I was playing for Chopin and Beethoven. I was, that's who I was playing for. I wasn't, I wasn't playing for the Germans. She fell back on her musical etiquette she had been taught by her father, and more importantly, those final words, I don't care what you do, just live. Just live. For four years, Jana and her sister live in fear of being found out, until the war finally ends. The sisters are now 18 and 16, and living in a displaced persons camp. That's where they're discovered by an American officer, Larry Dawson. He heard them playing on an old dilapidated piano, and he was a music lover from Virginia. So he approached them, and 
insisted that he was going to bring them to America to go to Juilliard. Larry gets the sisters on the first boat of Holocaust survivors leaving for the U.S. Jana and Frina do attend Juilliard, and both go on to musical careers. Eventually, Jana marries Larry's brother, David Dawson, also a musician. They have two children, Greg and his brother Bill. It's a whole new start. Jana doesn't look back. Her break with her past had been so complete. In her mind and also in the minds of those still in Ukraine, where she was presumed to have been, presumed to be dead, it just never occurred to her to, to try to reach out and find them. And so she never had any contact with them. And it's too bad because the Boganches themselves, the parents, they didn't live long enough to know that the girls had survived, that they had actually managed to put together a strategy that would indeed save their lives. When Marina finishes the book, her curiosity goes into overdrive. What's next? What happened to Jana? What happened to her? So I googled her name and it just came with the full phone number and I called her. And that's how our friendship began. When Marina made that call, out of the blue, Jana is 86. Very witty, very playful, great sense of humor. You will never tell how old she was, like, like a child inside. Very smart, sharp mind. They hit it off immediately. Two Jewish women from Kharkiv, Ukraine, both living in America, connected by a book. And uh, mostly, she went back and she talked about the past. And uh, as she talked, you could just sense her desire to, to be alive. But knowing Jana just makes Marina more curious about the family that saved her, the Boganchas. On Facebook one day, Marina notices an Andre Bogancha still living in Ukraine. She sends off a message. Are you related to the Bogancha family that rescued two Jewish girls in 1941? Andre answered me, yes. Andre Bogancha's son is Alex, the young man we heard at the beginning of the story. And Alex remembers Marina getting in touch with his father. The story of the Jewish sisters was part of the family history. She wanted just to ask a lot of questions about his story. And from at that time, they were communicating. They had pretty good relationship, like online. <laughs> For Marina, being in contact with the descendants of the people who saved her friend, it means a lot. I texted him, I'm very grateful from all of us what they've done. And he said, it's not me, it's them who helped the girls. But for me, it didn't matter. It's still, you know, somebody who opened their heart. And uh, that was successful story of survival only because somebody opened the door and let you in. Over the years, Marina stays in touch with the Boganchas and Jana and Greg, filling in the missing pieces of the puzzle on both sides. When the war started, she texted to us and asked about how are we doing. At this point, Alex and his family are not in immediate danger, but they're in limbo, wondering if they will ever go home. When you just move there as a refugees and uh, you're just wondering about what's going to happen next, 
It's scary. So when Marina asks, What can I do for you? It's my turn now. What can I do for you now? Alex's father has one request. Help my son. My father said that I'm starting business, yeah, and I don't know where to go. And then I started searching how I can help the boy to enter maybe some school, and then the whole thing started. By this time, Jana was 95 and suffering from dementia. Farina had passed away in 2019. Marina turned to Jana's son, Greg. Marina asked us if we had any way that we could help. And so, again, this is a quite a moment of, of full circle of paying it forward or paying it back. And, and we happened to be working with an organization called Ukrainian Mothers and Children Transport that provides free legal um, advice to Ukrainians who had wanted to come to this country after fleeing the war. One of the, my biggest dreams in childhood was to visit LA, really. <laughs> when I firstly heard about this opportunity, I was excited. I was excited both about the opportunity to come to Los Angeles and study here, and because of people, like amazing people who want to provide help for others. Working with this organization, Marina leads a massive group effort to get Alex into a college in Los Angeles. They find him a sponsor, housing. Greg, who lives in Florida, pays for his flight, arriving January 14th, 2023. My first emotions, it was like 10 minutes before the landing, and I was like, wow, it's real right now. A big group of people are waiting outside the airport arrival doors. Legal scholars who volunteer to process his paperwork, his official sponsor, all of them have played a role in getting him here. The most excited person is Marina. As soon as we learned the airplane landed, we all screamed and waited until he will go through customs. <laughs> we couldn't wait this last minute. I was coming there with my bags and See that a lot of people are just staying there and waiting for me, and they're waving their hands, yes, and uh, flags, Ukrainian and US flags. And it felt just like I met other part of my family. That was the feeling when you hug and see his face. I was crying, like everybody did, everybody cried. Tears of happiness and joy that we we achieved it, and um, we paid something back to this amazing family. But there was someone important missing from this reunion. Jana Arshanskaya Dawson died just a few days before Alex arrived. She would be thrilled. I mean, she would be thrilled. She would have been the first in line to to help in any way that she could. In June, a few months after Alex, the rest of the Bogancha family arrived in Los Angeles, starting over, just like Jana did 77 years ago. It feels unreal for me still, because, I don't know, I feel myself as a movie hero who had experienced something unusual, something fantastic. When you start trying to make a, a chart of the things that had to happen, 
the, the serendipitous things, the fortunate things, the lucky things. See, it's pretty mind-boggling. One woman read the story, read this book, and she was very amazed by the story. And uh, this woman's name is Marina. And now Marina is like part of our family. I should say Alex is like my third child. And when people showered Alex and the family with love, all of those people, they are descendants of those who perished during the Holocaust. And uh, this is our turn to do something, not even repay, it sounds very primitive. It's not even repay. Something that we can help them with to feel what it can be to be alive and to be saved. For Greg, this happy ending is a good reminder that even the smallest actions can ripple out across time and space. You never know when that opportunity might arise, when you can do something to help. And it makes you stop and think about your own life and think that, wow, I'm so happy that I was here to be able to be part of making this kind of difference in somebody's life. Alex is now studying business at Santa Monica College. His parents and sister are getting settled in Los Angeles, with Marina's help, of course. Greg Dawson and his family are planning to travel from Florida to meet up with them soon. The Bogancha and Dawson families would like to acknowledge the legal support from Chapman University law professor Michael Basiler and his students, especially Ileana Castaneda. To understand how anyone can step up to help refugees, I spoke with Una Bilic. She's a deputy director with the International Rescue Committee, based in Florida. Una came to the United States as a refugee herself, evacuated from Bosnia in 1994, with shrapnel injuries when she was just 10 years old. I started by asking her about the biggest hurdles refugees face when they arrive in a new country. Two things. You come with trauma. Trauma from your homeland or trauma from the country that you escaped to when you first escaped your homeland. So that's still very much engraved in you, and you're still battling that. But then you come to your new home, for here being, you know, the United States, and then you have to integrate, and you have to get a job really fast, and you have to learn the language, and you have to learn the culture, but you're still battling the trauma you left behind. And you're busy when you first get here. Can you paint a picture of everything a refugee has to do when you first land in a totally different country on a totally different continent often? Oh, my goodness. Uh, when refugees come to the United States, they go through the process through the State Department and they are matched with a resettlement agency such as the International Rescue Committee. So when a refugee first arrives, we pick them up at the airport. We take them to their brand new home, fully furnished, stocked up with food. Then the appointments start. So we have to enroll the kids into school. We have to enroll the parents into English classes. We have to enroll the parents into employment classes. We have to make sure that all the documentation is attained, such as your social security card, um, state ID card. Um, you have to make sure that the, there's cultural orientation classes, making sure that this family understands the new culture and an environment that they are now a part of. You have to do job readiness classes. What is a resume? What is an application? What is an interview? It sounds incredibly overwhelming. Definitely. What do refugees usually need the most when they arrive? 
they need us to provide them the the mechanisms and tools to help them in achieving this thing we call self-sufficiency so that when the federal funds are exhausted and they're very limited, how do they survive on their own? How do they pay this apartment that I found for them on their own? How do they pay for their kids' uh, school supplies on their own? How do they buy the food that they need on their own? So they need somebody to really help guide them through this process. Well, in terms of donations, besides the obvious money, what's the most useful? We always say you can give your money, but you can also give your time. And every office has such different volunteer opportunities. Here in the United States, we're really, really pushing sponsorship models where local community groups get very involved in the refugee cases uh, integration process and help do some of the services, help take clients to the doctors, help take clients on job interviews, help prepare them, help them learn English. So it's like this co-sponsorship model working with a local resettlement agency and a local community group. But then there's other like one-time things that community members can do. Can you help us set up a home for uh, a refugee? Can you help us gather donations? Hey, do you have that used couch in, in your garage that's just collecting dust but is in really good shape? Give it to us. We need it. Have you seen the community that you work in support refugees? Yeah, very much so. In the different communities I work with, they have always been really supportive of refugees. Uh, one of the big law offices in Tallahassee contacted me and said, hey, we want to get involved. Sure, I'll, get, I'll, I'll donate money, but how can I donate time? And they came up with an idea saying, we at the law office really love running and we're part of a, of a, of a local running club. How about we create a youth program where your refugee youth come and run with us? And this law office set this all up, bought the kids all running shoes, had like different running classes, like middle school, high school, uh, elementary school, like the elementary school kiddos Torah would play like duck, duck, goose. That was their running. That was their running uh, activities. But the high schoolers would run for miles around like the track and the park. And it was one of my favorite ways that a community member stepped up and and involved like very limited language, very limited in resources, but it was probably one of the best things we we were able to get done for the families. So sometimes it's contacting your local resettlement agency and really having an idea of how you can best support instead of saying like, hey, Una, what do you need? Um, what do you want me to do? I really think the collaborative approach always works best for the community, for the resettlement agency, and almost most definitely for the client. Una, thank you for your work and thank you for, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tora. That's it for this episode of OnStar's Tell Me What Happened. True stories of people helping people. And if you want to share your own story about a stranger who showed up for you at just the right moment, look for a link at OnStar.com. Or if you're listening on Spotify, check out the Q&A feature. Let's share some love for people who help others in big ways and small. And while you're at it, share some love for this podcast. It really helps if you review and rate us or share this with someone who would enjoy it. 
On behalf of OnStar, I'm Tora Kachur. And please, be safe out there. <laughs>